Um, all right. Well, um, again, it's uh, it's good seeing you guys all. Um, if you guys, if this is your first time here, uh, welcome. My name is Eric. I'm the pastor uh, for this youth ministry, and um, for the past uh, month or so, we've been going through First uh, Corinthians, and uh, we are in, um, I believe, our fourth message in First Corinthians. And so uh, we've kind of got to that point in First Corinthians where uh, Paul is now really focusing on the big crux of what he is addressing in. Um, in the first Corinthians. And so without further ado, um, I invite you guys all again to open up your Bibles to first Corinthians, uh, chapter one, verses 18 to 25. And this is what the apostle Paul writes, uh, in verse 18 of chapter one. And this is what he says for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Um, last week I had, uh, I had mentioned that uh, one of my favorite movies is Remember the Titans, and tonight I'm going to use it again. Just kidding, I'm not. I'm really not. Uh, but I am going to re- reference another favorite movie of mine, uh, 500 Days of Summer, and I, I am reusing that, okay? Um, and I'm just... Hey, you know what? I, 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 when I was including this uh, sermon illustration, I was like, you know, only like a quarter of you guys have heard this. And so three quarters of you guys have not. So this is so fresh in your guys' memory. Um, but I think only like Audrey, Zach, maybe Elena, uh, and maybe like some other high schoolers have heard of it. Anyway, that's beside the point. Um, but um, uh, I don't even care that I'm using it again uh, because I felt the need to use it again because, uh, well, one, yes, I am a one-trick pony. Um, but And also because I feel like it's just so apt uh, for this message this evening. Um, but in, uh, in 500 Days of Summer, if you're not familiar with this movie, um, it's your usual uh, rom-com kind of, uh, but it takes a little twist. Uh, but in 500 Days of Summer, uh, we meet Tom and, and Summer, um, the main characters, and uh, obviously they, they date each other, and it's really after you know they break up that the movie uh, really takes a different kind of direction. Uh, and it moves away from the typical boy meets girl, girl falls out of love with boy, you know, cliche storyline. And, and so months after Tom and Summer break up, um, Tom takes a train uh, to attend a wedding and bumps into Summer uh, on the same train. And much to his um, initial dismay, um, he, he finds out that they're both headed to the same wedding. Um, but on the way there and at the wedding, uh, they have a great time. Uh, they dance, they talk, Summer catches the flower bouquet. Uh, and before falling asleep on Tom's shoulder, uh, Summer asks, uh, on, on, on the train ride back, she asks and invites Tom to her apartment uh, for a rooftop party. And, and so from all appearances, you know, from the dancing, uh, the talking, the sleeping on the shoulder, uh, Tom is optimistic that him and Summer are finally gonna get back together. And, and so he agrees to, tend to, uh, he agrees to tend, attend her party. And, uh, and as Tom you know, makes his way to her apartment, uh, the screen cinematically splits. And it's never a good sign when the first line of the background music playing in the background is, uh, he never saw it coming at all. Um, and so the left side of the screen depicts Tom's expectations of how he'd like the evening to go, while the right side uh, of the screen depicts how the evening actually does go. 
Um, and so in reality, uh, because it's a movie, uh, nothing goes according to his expectations. Um, as the scene unfolds, on the left, he hopes that, you know, as she opens the door, she greets him with a kiss. Uh, but in reality, on the right, um, she opens the door and just gives him a brief hug. And as he makes his way inside her apartment, he hopes that, you know, he's greeted by people. Um, but really, in reality, no one says hi to him at all. Um, and, and hoping that he gets to spend the whole evening uh, with Summer. Uh, in reality, he finds out uh, that the whole reason why there's a party at Summer's apartment to begin with is because they're all celebrating her engagement. And so it was hardly a, a, a revelation that Tom had expected nor desired. And he never even saw it coming. And so completely disillusioned and disappointed, he leaves her apartment. Have you ever been disappointed by unmet expectations? Have you ever been disappointed by unmet expectations? And, you know, I think all of us can say, of course. Uh, and, and some of you guys are even like, my whole life is a living reminder of unmet expectations. But have you ever been uh, disappointed by unmet expectations? Maybe freshman or sophomore year was, was hyped up for you, uh, but in reality, it was actually worse than what you had hoped. Uh, maybe for some of you, you had high expectations of, of being a teenager, but you realize that in reality, it's just like being a preteen with just more responsibility and more acne. Now, what about being a Christian? Maybe for some of you who have grown up in the church uh, and you have heard the gospel and the story of Jesus all your life, and you have heard of the miracles that Jesus has done, and you have heard of how uh, his grace can change your life, but you really don't see any of those things as present realities in your life. Um, and, you know, if I think, for, I think for a lot of us, and especially myself especially, um, we think that when we become Christians, our, our lives in some ways should just be easier and not harder. We're told that the gospel has power, but it doesn't seem to have any power in our everyday lives and relationship conflicts with other people. We still sin. Uh, we still get sick. Uh, we still have problems. And it, it seems, in fact, that the gospel seems to create more problems than it does answer them. Have you ever been disappointed by unmet expectations? Now, the problem isn't that the gospel is defective or that it doesn't have power or that our expectations of what Jesus can do are too high or even too low. It isn't that we have unmet uh, or low or high expectations of Jesus. The problem is that we have misunderstood expectations of Jesus and the life that he calls us to live. And this is exactly what we see in the passage that we just read. You know, one of the, ch- one of the challenges of preaching um, a, a small chunk of scripture every week like this is that sometimes we forget the overall and larger picture of what the biblical author is talking about. If you'll remember, 1 Corinthians is mainly a letter written as a response to all the problems that the Apostle Paul had heard about. The Corinthian church, again, was not a model community. And, and last week we discovered that a major problem occurring in the Corinthian church was the problem of divisions. And I had mentioned in last week's message that the divisions occurring within the community of God were tearing the church apart. And we found out that the cause of those divisions was that the church had allowed the culture of the city to seep into the culture of the community. The the Corinthian church had lost sight of who they were, who their Messiah was, what their mission was, and had allowed popularity contests and rival personalities to dominate and destroy the unity of the church. And it's here in the, pa- in the passage that we're looking at tonight that Paul begins to uncover and unmask the root causes of the Corinthian conflict 
and the conflicts that arise in this high school group. The root cause was that the Corinthians had profoundly misunderstood values and expectations of Jesus the Messiah. The root cause was that the Corinthians had profoundly misunderstood values and expectations of Jesus the Messiah. And so the key idea for uh, this evening's message is that a life centered on Messiah requires a reevaluation of our values and a reevaluation of our expectations. The first point is that a life centered on Messiah require, requires a reevaluation of our values. And so for some context, um, I'm going to actually have us start in verse 17, the verse prior uh, to verse 18. Verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, what unlocks the whole passage is actually what Paul says in verse 17, where he says, And not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why does, the, why does Paul say that? Well, it's because if the gospel was all about flashiness and polished words, we make the messenger more important than the message itself. Do you guys see what, what I'm trying to get at? We make the messenger more important than the message if we focus on the eloquence of what is being said. We end up idolizing more the storyteller than the story itself. And I think that's our base impulse in life. Like out of all the messages that I remember when I was in youth group, the most memorable messages weren't the ones that preached the gospel. And unfortunately, I really wish I did remember that. But the ones that made me, uh, that, that I remember the most were the ones that made me laugh the most. And I'm certain that for all of you guys, like 24 hours from now, you're not going to remember anything that I've said. But this was a problem in the Corinthian church. Not that they forgot what you know, Paul was saying, uh, but that the root cause of divisions that had occurred in the church was, was the church's idolatry of what was flashy and stylistic. Something that this high school group is never prone to, right? Of course not. So to understand the problem a bit more, there's some, some more back, background to the city of Corinth that I need to mention. Uh, we had kind of mentioned it the first, in the first message uh, on 1 Corinthians, but Paul mentions wisdom and, or, or, or wise nine times in eight verses, which tells us that wisdom is a big theme in this passage. And it's obvious that Paul is reacting to some kind of wisdom in this passage. And so Paul is already assuming that the Corinthians know what he's talking about, but we don't. And so what's going on? Well, if you remember, Corinth was very much the, the Los Angeles or the, the, the San Francisco or the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. It was one of the largest port cities of the Mediterranean world, which meant that you had all sorts of people coming into the city. And in fact, one writer says that Corinth was the passageway for all of humanity. It was socially diverse. It was economically diverse. It was religiously diverse. And it was also intellectually diverse. If you wanted to start a new life, you moved to Corinth. If you wanted to make it big, you moved to Corinth. And beneath the undercurrent of city and public life in Corinth was an unspoken cultural expectation to be better. Which is why Corinth was cutthroat competitive in every possible way. The city and its people were very status aware. They were a people who were hungry for making a name for themselves. So much so that one commentator writes that Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. Corinth was very much an honor and shame society where, where style and steez were more important than substance, where your sense of worth was tied to how others thought of you and your accomplishments, 
which is why Corinth cared so much about outward appearances, rhetoric, wisdom, all things that, you know, obviously uh, we can't relate to. And so when you look at Corinth like that, it's, it's actually not hard for us to see ourselves in the Corinthians. Because like Corinth, we also live really in an honor-shame society and community. If you think about it, the whole point of social media is based on the idea of honor and shame, where how you curate and nurse your public image has become an art form, is it not? Where how many likes or retweets or views you have will determine where you stand in the pecking order. And so, so many of us are immediately drawn to outward appearances. The person who is smarter than this other person. The person who is cooler than this other person. The person who is more gifted than this other person. The person who is more articulate than this other person. If we're really honest with ourselves, these are the kinds of people that we like to crowd ourselves around. And what we, like the Corinthians, have forgotten is that the Jesus that we follow is not like that. Take a look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What Paul is saying is, look, you've got it all wrong. Here is what the world thinks about success. Here's what the world values. Here's what the world thinks is important, but those values and those definitions of success are not what God values. And that is not what God thinks is important. And that is not how God defines success. Why? It's because status and success ultimately don't matter and must ultimately be redefined and re-evaluated because the king of the world became a crucified servant for the world. One of the reasons why we forget this is we don't realize just how scandalous the cross of Jesus is. You know, one of the difficulties that we have as 21st century American Christians reading this text is the difficulty of recapturing what the cross would have meant to the ancient world. Today, you see and hear the cross everywhere. Pastors talk about the cross. It's fastened on a wall in our sanctuary. Your mom probably wears a cross necklace. And if you're really edgy and cool, it's tattooed on your body somewhere. But what if one day, what if your classmates just one day showed up to school with a necklace of the gun that took out those 11 poor people at the Pittsburgh synagogue? Or what if another classmate of yours showed up to class wearing a t-shirt of the atomic bomb that dropped over Hiroshima? What if another classmate of yours showed up wearing earrings of the planes that took down the World Trade Center? This is how any first, uh, first century Greco-Roman would, uh, individual would have seen the cross. The cross was not a fashion statement, but a torturing device. People were horrified and shocked at what the cross meant. To be put to death by crucifixion was illegal for Roman citizens and was, and was only reserved for rebellious foreigners, enemies of the government, and runaway slaves. In fact, the, the, the cross was something that you didn't even talk about. And yet, this is the means through which God was going to save the world. That an executed criminal claiming to be Jesus the Messiah from a despised race and a conquered nation died on a rubbish heap outside of the gates of Jerusalem between two criminals dying a death for sinners. But the Creator God would raise him from the dead three days later, 
conquering sin and death. And now that same crucified peasant carpenter is now king of the universe, calling out a people for himself, the church, to faith and obedience, and returning to establish his kingdom on earth. And if you heard this kind of message, that is just completely unbelievable. I mean, if you tell that to your non-Christian friends, they would think, are you kidding me? And this is why the word of the cross is foolishness to the perishing. In fact, the word for foolishness and folly in this passage is the word that we use for moron. Now, make no, make no mistake, Paul is not, is not arguing for anti-intellectualism. We know that Paul is an incredibly intellectual man who loves God with his mind. But what Paul is pointing out is that God is doing things in such a way that no one would expect. It's not that the cross was stupid, but that the cross, that, but that God had used the cross as a social stigma to save people. The word of the cross is a moronic message because according to the value system of our world, God's way of doing things makes no sense at all. How can the Savior be the one who dies? Just just catch and understand what's going on in Paul's logic here. But the cross of Jesus shows us how little God cares about what the world cares about. Status, appearance, success, recognition. The cross of Jesus shows us exactly how little God cares about any of those things. Take a look at verses 19 to 20. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? One thing that all of these three individuals had in common was that they were, these were the most esteemed and successful individuals in Paul's day. And through the, through the cross, God reveals how empty the value system of the world is. The point that Paul is making is that God pays no regard. God pays no regard to what the world thinks is important. We see in the cross of Jesus the Messiah that God regularly confounds our values and reverses them. Um, I was watching uh, the documentary Jackie with Megan a while ago, and I, I think I actually had to, had to use this illustration now that I mention it. Sounds familiar. And, and Jackie is the, the documentary of Jackie Kennedy and the events leading up to President Kennedy's assassination and the events after. And anyway, the, I thought the movie was kind of boring. Uh, that's beside the point. But I was really interested in the, in the, Kennedy, in the Kennedy family after that. And it turns out that uh, John F. Kennedy's grandson is only three years uh, younger than me. Uh, that's also random. But if you guys are familiar with the Kennedys at all, um, their entire family has a history of, I guess, bad fortune uh, or bad luck. Um, like there's a whole Wikipedia page called the Kennedy Curse, um, and it details all the tragedies that happened to the Kennedy family. Uh, both John F. Kennedy's brothers died either by plane crash or by assassination, which both of which are terrible. Um, one particular de- death that had caught my attention was, was, was John F. Kennedy's son's death, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., and uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, died super young when he took his plane out for a ride that never came back. And his disappearance actually received a lot of media coverage. Uh, former President Bill Clinton sent the government to go look for him uh, because the Kennedy family had done so much for America. And so, um, and so as the, the media pursued the story, they found out that he had crashed his plane and everyone in the plane uh, with him also died. 
which is terribly tragic. And the reason why he had crashed, uh, they found that the media found that um, the reason why the plane had crashed was because he had suffered from what was called spatial disorientation. And spatial disorientation is when you're unable to figure out your orientation in, rela in relation to the ground. Okay, so in other words, you can't tell if you're right side up or upside down. Uh, and this is actually really common with uh, if you're like underwater or if you're in space, which I don't think any of us will be in um, unless you have like, you know, thousand, thousand dollars. But um, most likely it's, this also happens when you're in the air. Okay, uh, where it's hard to tell where you're where, where you are in relation to the earth. Okay, and so what happened with JFK Jr. was that he, when he had when he had experienced spatial disorientation, what most likely happened was that he thought he was still 8,000 feet up in the air when he, in reality he was actually just feet away from crashing into the ground. His death is a tragic consequence of what happens when you can't tell if you're right side up or if you're upside down. I think a lot of us live our lives with spatial disorientation without really being aware of it. We believe that we're flying right side up when in reality we're actually flying upside down. And this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to show us. Paul has been trying to show us that we have been flying right side up when we need to fly upside down. Because human wisdom will say that life right side up is to value intellect. It's to value that smart person, that cool person, that athletic person in your class, to value success, to value recognition, to, to value status and control. Human wisdom will say that life right side up is to value what others think of you or how you want others to think of you or, or what you want to accomplish. But the wisdom of the cross says that, the tr that, that true life right side up is actually a life upside down. And it is a life that opens up a whole new way of being human. Why? Because if God chose to reveal himself through a cross, then everything that we think is important Everything that we say, everything that we do, and everything that we value must be reinterpreted and re-evaluated in light of the cross. This is what Paul is saying to this high school group right here. It is not an oversimplification to say that if our lives were really centered on Jesus the Messiah and Messiah crucified, everything in our lives would take on a new shape because here's the thing. If we live in a world where God was crucified for others, what does that say about what is truly important and valuable? If we live in a world where God became poor for others, what does that tell you about identifying with the powerful and the strong or seeking success or seeking the approval of others? If we live in a world where God was tortured for others, what does that tell you about the importance of loving others when they least deserve it and serving others when they least deserve it? What you should be ambitious about must be reevaluated. Must be reevaluated in light of the cross. What you should look for in a friend must be reevaluated in light of the cross. What you expect out of this high school group and the people here must be reevaluated in light of the cross. What you should value must be re-evaluated re in, in light of the cross. How you should see yourself and others must be re-evaluated in light of the cross of Jesus the Messiah. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that when Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount, 
the people who would enter into his kingdom are not people who relied on their own success or on their personalities or how gifted they were or their intellect. But the people that would enter the kingdom were people who saw their need for God. If you remember the Beatitudes, the people that were blessed were the people who were poor in spirit, who, who mourned, who were merciful, pure in heart. And what we have to understand, remember, remember, is that God's ways, and remember this, God's ways are not our ways. And we need to stop evaluating other people and our circumstances the way that our world does so. In the cross of Jesus the Messiah, what we think is important is not what God thinks is important. Because in the cross of Jesus the Messiah, God redefines and reverses everything that we thought was important. This means that we no longer evaluate even our community, this high school group here, on this, on the basis of status. But in light of the cross of Jesus the Messiah. This is what must bind us together and define this high school group. Why does God have to reverse and redefine? Why does it have to be like this? Why does God have to just blow everything up? Take a look at verse 19 real quick. Verse 19, it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernments of the discerning I will thwart. Paul is actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And the context of this Old Testament passage is that, what, is that when faced with the military threat of Assyria, while knowing that Yahweh, their God, has acted in the past to save them time and time again, Israel still instead chose to make a military alliance with Egypt that would eventually provoke their enslavement. And catch this, demonstrating that their ultimate allegiance was not to God, but to themselves. What is the point of Paul using this, quote, this, this verse here? The point is that God turns our world upside down in order to show us that our greatest need isn't more success or more flashiness or more intellect or more athleticism or more comfort or more reliance upon ourselves. Our greatest need is redemption. That is our greatest need, believe it or not. Because when you have success and intellect, a cool following, what need do you have really for God? Through the, through the foolishness of the cross, God is willing to break down and subvert what we think is important in our lives now because he knows that those things will only and ultimately break us later. God strips all of the things that we once valued because what the world values can never deliver when we really need it to. Does it not? And God does so so that we can say just like that hymn, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise Still be my vision, O ruler of all. It's exactly what Paul can say in Philippians, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of the old things that we once thought was important is no longer important for people whose lives have been centered on Messiah. And this is what the cross of Jesus does. A life centered on Messiah requires a reevaluation of our values. And secondly, and uh, I've spared you guys because my second point is actually really short. 
But a life centered on Messiah requires a reevaluation of our expectations. A life centered on Messiah requires a reevaluation of our expectations. Take a look at verses 21 to 23. Verse 21. <coughs> For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And uh, I think most of you have all seen or read uh, the Harry Potter series uh, and, and books and movies. But as you all know, uh, in the Harry Potter world, and if you have not read it or seen it, man, shame on you. That's like all our childhood. But um, as you guys all know, in the Harry Potter world, there is a prophecy that foretells of a chosen one who will defeat, I guess, the evil one. In this case, Voldemort. And we all know that the chosen one is, is Harry Potter. And, and when I found out that it was Harry who was supposed to be the chosen one, I was like, dude, this guy's like, you know, kind of lame, you know, and not that important until, until, like, he got really buffed up. Okay, he got, like, you know, the Elder Wand and, uh, and, you know, Dumbledore loved him and he had the, the Nimbus 2000, the Fireball, right? That's, okay, anyway, I thought it was really cool. Anyway, um, Harry wasn't even the most gifted wizard. Okay, Hermione was. But I, you know, as the, as the series progressed, you know, I, Got more sympathetic. Um, and I was actually really pumped for, uh, for Harry because I was hoping for really a, actually a, a great triumph and victory. And then I found out that Harry had to die in order to defeat Voldemort. And I was like, like, what's the point? Like, why does he have the Elder One? And, you know, obviously, you know, J.K. Rowling had built a, you know, mythology behind this. But anyway, um, it was, I thought that the ending was anticlimactic. Okay. Um, and I think when we hear of stories like that or like of movies, like in, uh, you know, Star Wars, or like, you know, there's a chosen one who must, uh, you know, win by dying or whatever. Um, you know, there's this, you know, motif, um, of this prophesied hero, and he or she is supposed to right all the wrongs and win. And, and you see, the Corinthians had mis- had a misunderstood and flawed expectations of Jesus the Messiah. The reason why Paul says that Messiah crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles is because they did not believe that he was a stumbling block. They thought that the Messiah was synonymous with victory and triumph. And what we see here in these last five verses is that the cross defies expectation. For the Corinthians, they wanted a Messiah without the cross and Christianity without a crucifixion. And this was the reason why the Christian community was prone to value success, flashiness, and status. And Paul is saying, if you really understood what Jesus the Messiah was all about, success, flashiness, and status should be on the bottom of the totem pole. What about us? What do you expect of Jesus the Messiah? You see, there's a clear difference between the Messiah that God sent to the world versus the Messiah that we hope God sent to the world. Did you guys catch that? There's a difference, and it's a subtle one, there's a difference between the Messiah that God sent to the world and a difference between the Messiah that we hope that God had sent into the world. So many of us want a Jesus without a cross. Because without a cross, we can have Jesus without the obedience. We can have Jesus without the responsibilities. And we can have Jesus without losing anything else. And the reason why, it's hilarious actually, if you think about this, but the reason why Jesus frustrated the Jewish leaders so much was because Jesus was not 
the kind of Messiah that they had hoped for and wished for him to be. The Jewish expectation of the Messiah was that after generations and generations of despotism, the Messiah would return to Jerusalem and kick out all of Israel's oppressors and establish a new kingdom. But we know from the Gospels that this is not the Messiah that Jesus was or what they wanted him to be. Take a look at verse 24 and 25. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness, weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, what, what Paul is trying to show here is that for the Jews and for the Greeks, the crucified Messiah wasn't the chosen one what they wanted, but the chosen one that they desperately needed. And I think the hardest part of this passage is believing that God's expectations of Jesus the Messiah are better than our expectations of Jesus the Messiah. What are your expectations of Jesus the Messiah? What, what do you want and hoped for when you believed in Jesus? Maybe the Jesus that you hoped for would be the one who would get you into the Ivy, that Ivy school that you boy want, always wanted to go to. Maybe the Jesus that you hope for will grant you long, long life and happiness. Maybe the Jesus that you hope for will simply shield you from all kinds of sickness and suffering. Maybe the Jesus that you hope for will solve all of your problems and cure all of the disunity that happens in this high school group. And while all of those are good and great things, those things are ultimately not what we need. And I just want to pose a question for you. What if the Messiah came not through a dissension from the, from the skies? What if the Messiah did not come riding in a chariot of fire, but on a donkey that he had borrowed from his friends? What if the Messiah came not with a sword and a shield to rescue his people's enemies, but with a cup and a piece of bread that would signify the blood and the body that would, sh that would be shed and be broken for sinners? What if the Messiah had laid down his crown and was strapped to a cross, never actually harming a Roman guard? What if the Messiah would actually die for sinners and experience the wrath of God on their behalf? What if the Messiah came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? Would that be enough? And could it be possible that this was far better than what the Jews, the Greeks, the Corinthians, and this high school group had ever hoped for nor imagined? What if the Messiah does not get into your, does not get you into your dream school, but instead says, your heavenly father knows what you need? What if the Messiah does not give you success or the approval of others, but instead says, my grace is sufficient for you? What if the Messiah does not take your trials away, but instead says, I am with you? Could it be possible that that is far more than what you could have possibly hoped and dreamed? Maybe not necessarily the Messiah that we had hoped for and longed for, but the Messiah of what we needed, a savior. The cross of Jesus not only defies expectation, it goes above and beyond. This is the wisdom of God, Messiah crucified. A life centered on Messiah is to see and evaluate all values and expectations transformed by the foolish and weak death of Jesus on the cross. And it is this cross that is to define your daily existence and realities. Because if you did, if, if your life was centered on this message, 
our priorities will be in the right place. Desiring exactly the things that God desires for us as his people. Let's pray together.